You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. We must wake up to the reality that many of us are over-churched and under-Jesus. The American church has fallen asleep. Over the past years, we've grown comfortable, complacent, and content to settle for less than God intended. And the church has lost its focus on Jesus' mission and settled for political and cultural battles. We have exchanged God's plan for changing the world for a plan of our own. We strive for people to make decisions for Christ while never making disciples of Christ. It's no surprise that the church has been in a steady decline for the past 50 years and is losing the next generation. These are your kids, your friends, your community, and even potentially you. And what? Because we have exchanged Christ and His mission for comforts and convenience. This is not what God intended for His people. It is time to sound the alarm, stop hitting snooze, hoping for man-made faces, and retreating to our comfort zone. The church needs followers who are ready to take the risk to live like Jesus. It's time for us, as His followers, to experience spiritual transformation that leads to gospel saturation. We believe church the way God intended can be experienced today. And he is calling Southbridge to step into that gap. We are called to be catalysts of an unstoppable movement of God. To reach RDU and ultimately the world for Jesus. In order for this to happen, we must be a church the way Jesus intended. We want to be a church that embraces the heart of the Great Commission and establishes a life-changing culture. We want to create relational environments where we can be intentional about moving towards spiritual transformation and gospel saturation. Jesus changes everything, and this is why we envision 100% of Southbridge members being intentional about their own spiritual growth and gospel saturation. We dream. We dream of a church. We dream of a church that's unstoppable because we enjoy God fully. Live as a family. And take radical risks. Amen. You can clap. Some of you are like, kind of, should I clap? Yeah, go ahead and clap. We do have a dream. We have a dream for the church. We believe that God has a dream for what the church could and should be. And I just want to ask you today, do you have a dream for your own life? Do you have a vision? You know, some people have a vision board. They'll take images of things to remind them of the things they dream of. Some people journal. Some people write out goals. How's all the New Year's resolutions going? Just kidding. Uh, you've got different ways that we think about what we want to be true. It might be as simple as I want to lose some weight, or I want to be a better version of myself, or I want to buy this house, or this career goal, or I want a family to be like this, I want these relational things, do you have a dream? Maybe you've never expressed it, maybe you've never said it, but there's something that you probably want life to be like. And we're doing a series today called Reimagine. It's a vision series, uh, but for those of you who've been around church before, when you hear that, uh, you might get a little tense. Um, nope, we're not going to try and get money from you. That's not what this means. We're not here to try and get you to do more stuff around here. There's always places you can serve. There's always things that can be done. I'm sure if you walked over to Bridge Kids right now, they'd figure out a way to put your gifts to use there. The Bible says we're supposed to use our, our gifts to serve the body. That's not the point of this, though. We actually don't want something from you. We believe we have something for you. And we're going to be sharing that in this series over the next eight weeks as we walk through Acts chapters 1 through 8 and look at God's plan for the church, because we think the church, the way that's happening in America, is broken. There's abuse, there's hurt, there's people disenfranchised, there's people seeing no need for the church. And so we want to reimagine what, what could it be, what should it look like for us? You ready for that? The end eight weeks is Easter. Let's do a little practice. Jesus is risen. risen so, what is your vision? For your life. What do you want it to be like? Sometimes when I think about it, I think about a lot of folks, their vision is actually not about moving forward. It's about hanging on to something that was part of their past. And this past week, I was up in our attic. I'm decorating my home office. I'm just looking for stuff I don't have to buy that we already own up in the attic. And I came across an old picture, and I brought it down. There was only one person home. It was my daughter, Janie. There it is. Yep. That is my sophomore year of high school. I put it on the kitchen counter. I said, look at this, Janie. She goes, wow, you had a lot of hair. Oh. <laughs> I think when I think about the past, I'm trying to restore the glory days. And I get a picture of myself. It looks a little bit more like this, actually, when I think about the glory days. <laughs> the further I get from the date of those events, the further I get from reality <laughs> of those events. And uh, 
You know, if coach had just put me in the fourth quarter, we'd have won states. The picture and track, actually, we did win state that year. It was my sophomore year of high school. At least that's what I remember. We'll have to check the record books if that's actually true. But what about you? What's your vision? It's about the past? It's about the future? What do you think should happen? Because what you see is that vision is powerful in our lives. It's been powerful throughout history in the Bible. When God picks a people, He calls Abraham, and vision always has these components, a problem, a plan, and a preferred future. Abraham had a personal problem. He couldn't have children, and his name meant father. Oh, my goodness. And God says, I'm going to make you the father of a nation, more than you'll be able to count, more than the stars in the sky. He paints a picture of the preferred, what's not true yet, but what the vision is, but you got to follow me. There's a plan. Moses, Moses had in his heart, he wanted to solve the problem. He just did it his own way. And then in a burning bush, as he's learning lessons to prepare him to be part of the plan, God gives him a vision, but it's going to take risk. Stand before Pharaoh. Nehemiah has a vision. David has a vision. Like you see it through the problem, plan, preferred future. And we see it even in the movies that we watch. And I I love movies a lot, but one of the reasons why I love movies is because the stories we tell shape our culture. And one of the primary ways stories are told in our culture is through media. And so you look at some of the stories that are told, and it doesn't have to be an intense one. We don't have to go like some big speech in a military campaign or some speech in a moment in a court trial. You can't handle the truth. Like, that's there. You can go to the rom-coms and find vision. I don't watch many of them. Jerry Maguire, the turning point in the movie when Jerry realizes he's a shallow, self-centered person, he gives a speech and says, you complete me. You had me at hello. Mm. But you didn't see that one because you're Christians. And so maybe um, five feet apart, notebook, I've not seen those. I mean, you can't choose what happens to you in your life, just the response. I mean, sometimes you've got to break the rules and do what's right. Anyway, I haven't seen them. Somebody in my house has, and, and Shanna, if we're ever both dying of a disease, and they tell us we have to be six feet apart, we can be five feet apart. The last night I started watching again a 1995 movie. Have you seen this one, Braveheart? William Wallace comes in, and people don't even think it's him in one of the battles. That's not Wallace. He's not tall enough. How tall do you think the guy is? He's on a horse. How do you know how tall he is? I've met people before, and they're like, oh, you're shorter than I thought you were. I'm like, oh, then you can smack me the other hand if you'd like to. That's fine. I stand up on a stage when I'm talking to you. So how do you know? And so Wallace, he makes some jokes about that. And then he talks about fighting, and one of the people in the crowd says, no, we're not going to fight. We're going to run. And he goes, ah, you can run, and you may live for a while. Here's the problem. We all die. And he challenges them, what will you live for? Inspiring quote in the speech is when he says, and if you run one day lying in your beds, many days from now, wouldn't you trade all those days to come back and fight for freedom? Rather than die having not fought. And so the problem is oppressive tyranny. Solution is we've got to fight. Preferred future is at least we didn't let them take our free. It doesn't even know if we're going to be free but not take our freedom. At that moment, I'm like, I'll fight. But I'm eating popcorn right now. I'm watching this thing. And then you see it in history, whether it's business and Steve Jobs. Remember when he stood on stage on January 7th, 2007, and he said, we're going to reinvent the phone. Let me get a picture of it here. That was the first iPhone. Do you remember it had a button on it? And he said, that screen is a huge screen, 3.5 inches. My daughter told me the other day that my iPhone is basically an iPad. I'm like, oh, I can't see because I'm not a sophomore in high school anymore, all right? But that phone changed the world just in 2007. That wasn't even that long ago. JFK, we're going to put a man on the moon. And if you listen to his speech, it's a lot about the progress, not just getting to the moon. We do it for the sake of knowledge, for curiosity, because of who we'll become. And we're going to win. We're going to beat the Soviet Union. And it's opened up a ton of technology. Martin Luther King, a hundred years after Abraham Lincoln said four score and seven years ago, 
Do you know that in his I Have a Dream speech, he wasn't even planning to say anything about a dream. That was impromptu. But he started the speech with the planned five score a hundred years earlier. There was an emancipation proclamation by Abraham Lincoln. There'd be no more slavery. And then he presents the problem, Martin Luther King said, but we're still captive in our own country and we claim we're a country, a contradiction, a hypocrisy. We claim that all men are created equal and they're not. And then somebody in the audience, a gospel singer who performed earlier, says, tell him about the dream, Martin. And from his heart, he just says, I do have a dream. He doesn't use these words, but he says, instead of melatonin being what decides who has value, how about character? How about people give equal pay? How about voting? How about, it was a jobs rally. It was his first stage on the national scene 250,000 people. That's a big stage. I mean, Taylor Swift even get that many at her concerts? I don't know. Chiefs games, but anyway. What's your vision? It's important. It's powerful. Changes history, changes lives, changes the world. It'll change your world. The problem is some of you have good visions and they don't align with God's vision and you're wasting your time, you're wasting your energy, and if you keep pursuing it, you will ultimately waste your life. The bigger problem is the American church has come up with our own visions for what church should be. We've conceded to consumerism, and we just give people what they want, and we judge our success based on how many people show up. Well, Taylor Swift has a bigger move of God than any evangelist. Hmm. It's not a good way to measure, is it? But we like our comfort and convenience, as you saw in the video. I do too. And so we baptize our political views and consumerism and all these other things with Bible verses for our preferences and our comforts. But what does God actually say? Is it actually about getting a guy elected? Is it actually winning a woke war? Or is there something bigger taking place? And I think there is. And I think there's more. And we're going to have to reimagine what church should be like in order to experience it. But he tells us in the book of Acts... So if you've got your Bibles, that's where we're going to be. We're not going to go verse by verse, but we're going to go kind of chapter by chapter through the book of Acts over the next eight weeks. At the end of eight weeks, it's Easter. He is risen. And that's where the book of Acts picks up. Jesus, at the end of each of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, gospel means good news. It's good news about the life, the teaching, the works of Jesus, has resurrected from the dead. And so imagine if you're one of his followers and you're like, I'm on team Jesus. Ain't nobody beating him. <laughs> you know, we like the underdogs. I'm a Lions fan. Didn't work out for us last week. But America was like, that's becoming, sorry, my wife's a Cowboys fan. The Lions are becoming America's team. Because even though we're a world power, we like an underdog story. And so we cheer for the underdog. Well, gee, everybody was against Jesus. They killed him. And then he's alive. Can't beat him. I'm with that guy. But what he says next shocks them to their core. I'm leaving. Bye. Can you imagine for a moment, like almost everybody here has experienced grief at some level. You've lost someone you love, a grandparent, parent, maybe a child, spouse, different people that you cared about, friends. Think about when that person died. It doesn't even seem real at first, does it? Like, like it can't really be gone. Then you think you see them, but it's not them. Jesus appeared multiple times to many people, over 500 eyewitnesses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 we read about, to each one of these disciples. At the end of the gospel of Luke, which is who, he's who writes the book of Acts, he eats fish with them. He's not a ghost. He digests the food. But he appears in the end of John in a room, the doors were locked, and all of a sudden he's just standing among them. Whoa! Among us, before there was a game. How about that? Just there. He really rose from the dead. But then imagine you see your person. They come knocking on your door three days after they die, and you hang out with them for 40 days, and at the end of 40 days, they're like, peace, I'm out. You're like, what? When are you coming back? Ah, not for you to know. So like three days, 3,000 years? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> That's what happens to these guys. Let's read about it. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Uh, Lord willing, we'll read uh, 11 verses today. I don't know if we'll do it all right now, but we'll see time-wise how we're doing. Um, Verse 1, Acts chapter 1. In my former book, Theophilus, okay, former book is the Gospel of Luke. 
Who is Theophilus? That's a question you have to ask yourself if you just read that. It's like, oh, some Theophilus guy. We never talk about him. I don't know. The reality is nobody knows who he is. Some people think because the name Theophilus means loved by God, that it's just a generic title for Christians. Uh, that's kind of a shaky theory. There's about six or seven. If you've got a study Bible, you can look down on the notes. It probably mentions at least one, if not all of the main ones. Um, six or seven theories that kind of maybe could be true. Some people think because he's called uh, most excellent Theophilus in the book of Luke that he was a Roman official. I don't know. Nobody knows. One theory that I like because it's interesting is that if you read the book of Acts, the end of Acts doesn't have an ending. There's this guy, he was named Saul, now he's named Paul, he's on trial for violating Roman law, and there's a thought that Christianity somehow is anti-Roman, and so one theory is that Luke, who was a doctor, writes an orderly account of the life and works of Jesus, is now writing an orderly account of the acts of the church, acts of the apostles is where that book gets its name, and so he's writing it as an orderly account to give to a guy who's the attorney, Theophilus, of Paul. So we have a legal brief here. Interesting. I don't know if it's true. We don't know who he is. But we got to ask, why was Luke written? So you go back to Luke chapter 1. If you want to know what Acts chapter 1 verse 1 means, Luke chapter 1, so you don't have to turn there if you don't want to. It's on the screen. Verse 1, it says this, just as they were handed down to us, and so he said, I set out to write an orderly account for you, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything, so Luke's not claiming to have been there for all this stuff, but he's talking to eyewitnesses, he's gathering account, he's doing depositions, he's doing interviews, he's going to journals. With this in mind, I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Here's why. So that you may know, and write this down, this is important, and if you're not going to write it down, text somebody, it looks like you're being spiritual, ready? The certainty of the things you've been taught, certainty. He wrote so that Theophilus, whoever that is, and maybe it's just all of us, and we know it applies to all of us, can be Okay, nine of you didn't text. There you go. Certain, certain. So you can be certain. And so he writes another book, part two. So Acts is the sequel. I don't have this today. Now it's just like, watch the next episode, skip to the next episode, skip the intro, just watch the show. When I was a kid, way back when I had a bunch of hair, uh, when you were watching a show, we couldn't even record it. I was with Jeannie, the one that said I had a bunch of hair the, the other day in a hotel room, and, and uh, we missed something on TV. She goes, rewind that. I was like, this is old school. We can't. I don't know. The hotel didn't have that feature. And she was like, what? Like, what? What are you talking about? I didn't even know that was a reality. Uh, what would happen at the end of shows when I was a kid is that you'd watch, and they'd leave you the cliffhanger and say, to be continued. <laughs> the sequel. Well, what happens is Acts is the sequel to Luke. This is the to be continued. This is the next part. And you're left going, well, the guy died and now he's alive. Now what? Well, I won't know for a week. <laughs> because what ends up happening is that Jesus, he's here for 40 days from his resurrection until a festival time of celebration called Pentecost. It's 50 days from his resurrection. There's 10 days between Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 2, a little bit more than a week. And so we're going to do Acts chapter 1, and we're going to wait about a week when we get to Acts chapter 2. And Acts chapter 1, what happens is Jesus tells them, I'm out of here. But there's a problem, there's a plan, and there's a preferred future. He gives a vision for the church, and we're going to get to the surface of that today. Look at what he says next. Verse 2, until the day he was taken up in heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After suffering, he presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs, and I mentioned a few of them already, that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem. Okay, but wait, for what? For the gift my father promised. If you want to know what that is, read John chapter 14 through 16, additional study on your own. We won't go there. Which you have heard me speak about. And here's the gift. For John baptized with water. Talking about John the Baptist. No, he wasn't a Baptist. 
but he baptized people. But in a few days, you will be baptized, immersed with, is what that means, the Holy Spirit. That's the gift. And so what's about to happen is so important and impossible, don't even try this on your own. Ever seen that? Don't try this at home. Okay, now without the Holy Spirit. Don't try this at church without the Holy Spirit, which got me thinking, how many things do we do as this church, I'm not talking about the American church, that we don't even need the Holy Spirit? Like, we don't have to try, I mean, we don't have to pray. I mean, we're just like events and moral people and just doing stuff. And it's like, do we even need the Holy, for me just to present truth to you? I don't need that. There's a bunch of people that teach that aren't Christians, the Holy Spirit part of that, but people learn stuff. If all we're doing is passing information, we don't need the Holy Spirit for that, but we do need the Holy Spirit for more than information, for transformation. And that's what we're talking about, spiritual transformation. And so Jesus says, hold up, hold up, wait, don't even try this without the Holy Spirit. Pause. So I wonder if we should sometimes pause and ask, is this of the Spirit? I know some of y'all do things outside the Spirit because I get your emails. <laughs> Just saying, I mean, this happens. And I do stuff without the Spirit too. I'm not going to tell you about it. But anyway, um, what if we just paused and said, is this of the Spirit? What's of the Spirit? Galatians 5, peace, love, joy, patience, kindness. You can read it on your own. Is this of the Spirit? He says, hold up. You can't do this without the Spirit. He's going to command them to do something that's impossible. But here's what you need to know, and you should know this, not just for this series, but for your life. There's nothing that God commands that he will not equip you for and empower you to do. He equips us with the information. He empowers us through the transformation of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Mm. And so there's nothing that God commands that he will not equip and empower. Know that. And notice this, it's a week between this moment and the church. So Jesus doesn't even want church existing without the Holy Spirit. And when he threatens the churches later, you're going to lose your land. The Spirit's going to depart from you, church. The Spirit's key. We'll talk more about the Holy Spirit next week. And look what he says. Then they gathered around him and they asked him. So they should probably ask questions about the Holy Spirit, right? But that's not what they asked. It's like what we would do, I think. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said that to them, it's not for you to know the times and dates the Father has set by his own authority. Okay. So they got political questions. He tells them about end time stuff. And he's saying, don't, that's not what you need to be worried about right now. And then the most popular verse, but oftentimes we don't even think about the fact it starts with the word but. So they asked one question. He's giving them a different answer. He's not even answering what they asked. He's telling them what they need to know. Hey, hey, are you going to make Israel great again? Are we going to storm the temple? January 6th. Too soon? Too soon? Oh, maybe. Hold on, hold on. Hold on. Don't leave yet. Well, you can if you want. I don't care. Tell us about the times and dates. I've gotten that email. I don't know if that's of the Spirit or not. But I don't know the times and dates, just so you know. It's closer today than it was yesterday. He'd come back at any moment. I don't know. He doesn't say. He says, it's not for us to know. The Father knows. But here's what he does want you to know. Not when he's coming back, but what are you supposed to do in the meantime? Here's the vision. You will receive, not if, it's, it's a promise. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you not a command, promise, will be in, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And those aren't just like different names in the back of your Bible. There's a reason that said, even for us today and our lives. And because we don't usually read the rest of it, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Oh, well, that's not normal. They were looking intently, that makes sense, up to the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? I, did you see what I just saw? Because it's kind of like, it's a funny question, which you could either make fun of the disciples for, or, or the question's really weird. But then look what the guys say. We don't know if they're angels, what's going on. They don't probably have any idea, but these guys are standing there. 
They're dressed in white. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking to the sky? The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Now, maybe it's just because I'm a smart aleck and I like to argue, but I would say back to that guy, well, then there's your answer. That's why I'm looking at the clouds. He's coming back in the clouds. You just said they're at the Mount of Olives. Some of you have been to the Mount of Olives with me. I see my friend Tim over here. He did a devotional at the Mount of Olives. If you've ever known somebody that's gone to Israel before, the Mount of Olives is the spot where they're standing. When they take that picture, we can see the golden dome where the Muslims have built their mosque on top of what Jewish people used to go to worship at, the Holy of Holies, a part of the temple. And so that's why you'll see Jews standing on what's called the Western Wall. They're trying to get as close as they can to what was the holy of holies. But we know, as followers of Jesus, you can boldly approach his throne at any moment. Amen? Because the curtain was torn. They denied access to anyone to the holy of holies. So you and I can have direct access to the Father. That's supernatural. That's power. That's pretty incredible. That's a work of the Spirit. And here these guys are. They're standing there. They're looking he said, wait, why wouldn't I stand here? I mean, why do I have to go to my house to wait? I don't know, he's going to be three days, he's going to be 3,000 years, well, I'm just waiting. Because he gave a, a job for them to do, a vision. There's a problem? They didn't have the problem right. There's a plan? There's a preferred future. And here's the reality. You're the plan. I'm the plan. It's alluded to in the Gospels. It later gets called officially the church, the called out ones. It's two Greek words put together. It means the people that are called out from this world with a message from the Father and a mission given by Him. That's us. That's the church. We're the plan. We're plan A. Bad news, there's no plan B. Jesus promised the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, Matthew chapter 16. But then you look throughout history and you're like, yeah, but we sure try to self-sabotage, don't we? The church has problems. The Crusades, anybody want to talk about that when you're trying to tell somebody about why they should trust Jesus? Oh yeah, we're just trying to, over, we're trying to get the temple back from the most. So we went and killed them, and Jews, and even some of our own Christians. And a lot of horrible stuff happened in the name of Jesus, but, but, but I'm not associated with that. Oh, you are actually. It's part of the legacy, right? It's a problem. Forced conversions, colonialism, well, those are problems that we caused ourselves. Selling indulgences. Hmm. Interesting. Talk about making church a business because of the marketing campaigns of celebrity pastors we have today. That's a problem. But selling indulgences, selling forgiveness to people. Whoa. It led to a reformation. Praise God for one man saying, hey, this is wrong. And restoring our view of the Bible and of grace and of faith, Martin Luther. He was flawed, broken, but God used him. These men are flawed and broken, and God uses them, but he's real clear. Uh, there's some things that are God's plan for them and for you and for me. And so when you think about reimagining God's vision for your life, here's what I can tell you for sure. God dreams of you being saved. Now, if you think, I am saved, I don't need to listen to this. I walked an aisle, I'm baptized, I got a thing. You need to know this for multiple reasons. And so first point is that you must be saved if you're going to align your life with God's dream for you. You think about who's being written to here. He says this, Theophilus, and, and remember, he's written already to Theophilus in the Gospel of Luke, and he told him those things so that he could be certain, certain of the life, why, who Jesus was, why he was here, what he did, and that he is risen. So, who was he and why was he here? Well, if you go to the beginning of Luke, you see who he was, the Christmas story. How many of you grew up in church? Just show of hands. Grew up in church. Did you ever have to be in like a church play? You ever seen Charlie Brown? You probably know the beginning of Luke, right? Behold, I bring you good news of what? Did you know what a glad tiding was? You're just saying it as a kid, right? And that what happened? Like, I didn't grow up in church. I just assumed I'd be like, glad tidings, blah, blah. <laughs> I'm bringing you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today, in the city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. Three titles 
and verse 11 that are all significant. He is a sa- Pause. It's so familiar we miss it. He's a savior? What does a savior do? Don't use church language. Rescues, saves, coming to get people out of danger, out of captivity, out of whatever it is that's holding them from freedom. Interesting. Jesus preached on his first message in his hometown synagogue in Luke chapter 4. Remember Luke. Why did Luke, why did Luke write to Theophilus so he could be? Okay. So we know that Jesus came to be a Savior. And in and, and verse 11 it says that he is Christ the Lord. Okay, so he, that's who he is. And then he came to save. So he's Christ. He's Lord. And he came to save. That's just the Christmas story that we read past. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus sits down uh, with a scroll from Isaiah. It's significant that he reads from the first part of a verse in Isaiah, and he doesn't read the second part of the verse, because the first part of the verse alludes to Jesus' first coming. The second part of the verse alludes to when he comes back as a warrior with a tattoo on his thigh and a bloody robe because he's slaughtered all of his enemies. Yeah. His first coming is different. Listen to it. This is Luke chapter 4, verse 18. If you've got a study Bible, I'll tell you what verse to read in Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me. So this is the Messiah. And, and Jesus is going to say, this is me. Uh, to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Did you know you were a prisoner? Jesus says in John chapter 8, when he's talking to some Pharisees. And we oftentimes just talk to the Pharisees like, Oh, they're hypocrites. They say one thing, they do something else. There's more to the Pharisees than just that. You know, some of the Pharisees even became believers in Jesus. But the tendency of the Pharisees was a small group, only about 6,000 men, most middle-class businessmen. They weren't even religious leaders. They just had political influence in the name of religion. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I might step on somebody's toes. Slow down. And cross some lines there. The real problem with the Pharisees is they were using God to run from God. We talk about the problem in our city is that people are over-churched and under-Jesus. It's not because we're against church, not the way God intended, but the church the way that it happens, that we are against that. And what oftentimes happens is you learn the words, and you know the information, and you lack the transformation, and I don't know anybody's heart, but sometimes I talk to people, and they're using the right language, and I think to myself, I don't think that word means what you think it means. And I already told you, I watch a lot of movies. If you picked it up, you picked it up. If you didn't, just keep moving. That's all right. Somebody leaned over and goes, the princess bride. Yep, there you go. But you can talk about salvation. You can talk about being baptized with the Holy Spirit. You can talk about what it is to be changed. And you may have cleaned your act up. And maybe you don't do some of, or at least you don't tell people about some of the naughty things you used to. Okay. There's a lot of non-Christians that stop bad habits and do good things and is there supernatural happening in your life because if there's not are you sure you're not using God to run from God and so Jesus says that anybody that sins is a captive to sin but here's the tough part about that is that the Bible tells us and Jesus says too everybody sins Oftentimes I'll quote like in an Easter service or when I'm making, I want the gospel to be as clear as it can possibly be for your people that you know that you brought here and you've told them the gospel, but maybe it'll just hit different way I say it. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short. We oftentimes just hear in our own hearts and our minds some standard that we just, the Ten Commandments or something we couldn't meet. That's not what the verse says. Fall short of the glory of God. What does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? Well, the Bible says also in Romans chapter 1 that we all have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. It's an exchange. It takes place. And that word's important. I'll use it again in just a moment. What's an exchange? Think about an exchange. Anytime you do business, commerce, online, in person, whatever it is, you have an exchange. I see my friend Pastor Brad sitting right here. I used to play fantasy football with him, and I would try to exchange my bad players for one of his good players. Amen? I haven't been invited back to that league for a while, but I did win. Anyway, um, I've got 19 guys I just picked up off the waiver wire. I want you to give me today Patrick Mahomes. Come on. All right. Please. 
I'll wash your car. Like, what do I do? What do I have to do? And so what I have to do is convince him that the trash that I'm trying to give him is worthy of the treasure that he has that I want for it to be an exchange. Because if you have 10 bucks and I want to try and sell you a piece of gum, you're like, it's not worth 10 bucks. I'm not going to have the exchange. But if I have something that's worth 100 bucks or at least 10 bucks, you go, yeah, I'll do that exchange because you think that it's worth it, even if it's not. And what we're being told is that where we fall short with God is He's got this glory that's the treasure, but we exchange the truth of God, who He is, His glory, for a lie. We exchange His plan for our own. We exchange His kingdom for our own. We exchange eternal satisfaction for temporary satisfaction. We exchange holiness, which is satisfying, for sin, which is temporarily satisfying. The truth of God for a lie is the exchange. But there's another exchange, and that's the good news that Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter 4. It's recovery of sight to the blind, not just physically, but that. Freedom for the captive, not just physically, but that sometime, maybe, maybe not. Paul, end of Acts. Huh. What's he talking about? He's talking about that he's the only one that ever came here, put on flesh, never sinned. Let the glory of God actually dwell among us. Tabernacle, John chapter 1 says. That he was here with us in the flesh. That's crazy. We read past that. That is crazy that God tried to communicate with it. Here's the command. Write them on tablets. Oh, you blew it. I'll write it on tablets again. You blew it. Okay, I'm going to show you my glory. Still blew it. All right, more idols. I'll send prophets. We want a king. No, I'm supposed to be your king. All right, I'll give you a king. When he's good, he'll point me to me. When he's not, I can still be ruling a sovereign. It doesn't matter who's on that throne. I'm the king of kings. Amen? But they still make idols. All right, I'm going to come down there myself. You ever say that to your kids? Don't make me come up there. It's like they just won't get it. So he puts on flesh and he comes and dwells among us, shows us what perfection looks like, and then dies on a cross, not for his own sins, he didn't have any, as a substitute for your sins. There's another exchange that can take place, and this is how you're saved. You exchange your sin for his salvation, your sin for his glory, your death, separation from God, for his life. He came so you could have life, and it starts now. It's not just getting into heaven one day, but you've got to have that transformation we call salvation saved. In case it's not clear, Luke goes on because he wants Theophilus to be certain. We got to like 20 of you now. All right, doubling the numbers. Luke chapter 15 the Pharisees and sinners are gathered around. The Pharisees are mad that Jesus is with these sinners. <laughs> Hypocrisy much? We're all sinners. You're not mad that he's with you. Interesting. So Jesus tells three parables. A parable, para means alongside. A parable is a spiritual truth that comes with a made-up story. The story did not actually happen. It's true to life in the sense that it's factually a real truth, but the, fa the people, the characters, all stuff's made up. It's a made-up story with a real-to-life truth. The made-up story that he tells first is about lost sheep, and so we might talk about losing your car, or some of you have chickens in your backyard in North Raleigh. They come to our campus sometimes here in North Raleigh, and walking in the parking lot in the middle of the week, and uh, you lose a chicken, when go looking for the chicken? I don't know. I don't own any chickens. I'd assume you go looking for the chicken. A shepherd's certainly going for a sheep. So he leaves the 99 to go get the one. And that's a made-up story. Here's the real-to-life truth. Luke chapter 15 and verse 7. I tell you that in the same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven. Okay, there's only one person in this whole situation when he's talking to the Pharisees, talking to the sinners, that's ever been in heaven. Do you know who it is? Yeah, he left there and came here. Oh, that's got to stink. You ever gone camping? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm around. You like sleep in your own bed, and then you go sleep somewhere else, and you're like, ah. You left perfection. Came very imperfect place. I tell you the truth, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Then he tells another story, made-up story, with a real-to-life truth about a coin, a day's wages, a drachma. This woman loses a day's wages, and she's looking diligently for it. She finds it. 
Made up story. Here's the real truth. Verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We've heard that before. I've got a few friends that are honest with me about my teaching. They'll say, you repeat yourself too much. I'm like, so did Jesus. (laughs) Repetition is so that you get it. But also when you're expecting it and it doesn't come, it leaves you with a tension. Third story is about a lost son. Sometimes we call it the prodigal son. He does repent. That means you turn. He was living life his own way. You turn from yourself. So he came to himself is the language of the text. An about face, to be literal. He turned. He turned from living for himself to going back to his father. The father in the story is a picture of our heavenly father. And the father runs to him. There's a celebration. But remember who he's talking to. There's people using God to run from God. And there's an older brother in this story. And the story has no ending. It doesn't say... All of heaven rejoices because that first son. Nope, you're left with attention because you're invited into the story. Are you the older brother? Are you using God language? God loves lost things. He loves lost people. That's what he's showing the character. But in case you didn't get it, and he wants Theophilus to be certain. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, Jesus himself says, and so some of your Bibles will be in the red letters, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. There are a lot of people who are in church, who know the information, haven't experienced the transformation because they haven't experienced God's salvation. Becoming a follower of Jesus, it requires some information, but it's not about information. It's about transformation. It's a spiritual transformation that begins with salvation. God dreams. And when I say dreams, I don't mean he sleeps. He never sleeps. He never slumbers. When I say that he dreams, I don't mean he's got this wish for your life. No, when I say that he dreams, I'm saying he's got a picture of the future that's the preferred future that he desires for you, a purpose for you. And I know that you would be saved. And you don't need to wait for me to stop this message to do that. Right now, you can just confess your sins, your need for a Savior, and in your own words say, I know you're the Christ and the Lord. I want you to be my Messiah, one that can cleanse me of my sins, the forgiver, the one that brings freedom, and my Lord, I'm submitting my life to you. I'm exchanging my agenda for yours. Because I want to exchange my sin for your righteousness. That's a great deal, by the way. God dreams of you being saved. But he doesn't just dream of you being saved. He dreams of you being sent. And the fact that I'm saying that one is the second point and not the third point is very significant. We'll get to in just a minute. But he dreams of us being sent. And so what does that mean to be sent? Does that mean I'm going to have to go somewhere? Uh, In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he talks about where we live and move, where we're currently at, Where he's going to take us in the future, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And we think those are just like these names of places that maybe if you went to Israel with me and pray for Israel, Lord willing, we'll go back someday. Pray for them, not just so we can visit, but pray that lives are saved. Pray that freedom happens. Pray that there's peace, the things that the Messiah comes to bring. Pray that there's salvation, even through tragedy, tribulation. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. He's not just talking about the geographic location. Some of your Bibles say the uttermost parts of the world. There's only 120 of them, by the way. Hmm. It's a big, audacious vision, Jesus. You came and you did something unbelievable. We don't even tell stories like this. Even the best movies, the comic books, the poems, the ancient literatures, like no stories like this. And when they're copying the Messianic figure, they still don't even do it like this. We have heroes, and they come, and there's a villain, and they'll overcome the villain and protect the people the villain threatens, but they don't die for the villain. That's what Jesus did for us, Romans 5, 8. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. We are the villain. And instead of coming and destroying us, he comes to save us. And then, think about what happens with these guys. It's like the the Summer Olympics are coming. I don't know if you do that or not. 2024, Summer Olympics in Paris. I don't know what events you like. You're going to have new ones, flag football. I don't know. Try out. Go try out. Tell me how it goes. 
Uncle Rico, he'd probably make it. Track's my favorite one to watch. My favorite race is the 4x400. It's one lap around the track. Could you imagine if you got tickets? Maybe you went to Paris. You were already going to be in Paris. You go see the Eiffel Tower, and you're eating macaroons and lots of pastries. That's what happens in Paris. Great food. Everybody smokes. I don't know why. I was there one time. I asked a guy. I said, why does everyone smoke? He goes, why is everybody in America fat? I was like, fair. All right, that's fair. Well, to make an observation, so are you. We're just going back and forth. Yeah. So you're eating. You're eating lots of food. You're hanging out. You're having a good time. You get tickets to go to this place and get to see this woman who never smiles. I think her name's Lisa. She must have been sick. She moans all the time. And so you go to that. You're kind of going and doing all the things, right? And so you got this deal. You get tickets to the, the Olympics. And you're sitting on the starting line and the finish line for the 4x400. And you're watching, and you're like, well, I'm American. I know a bunch of French people here, but I'm just cheering for the American guys. The American guy comes out there. And God, you've seen Bolt over here doing some commentary now. Carl Lewis is out there. You've seen all these different people. They're doing their thing. And you're just like, man, this is awesome. And you're eating some macaroons. <laughs> Takes off. The American guy falls down. Not down for long. 30 seconds, though. Oh, by the way, uh, when you watch those guys, it's just over 40 seconds they run the 400. He's down for 30 seconds. Then you look at the home stretch. He's coming, and you're at the starting line on the finish line. He's in the lead. You're like, whoa, that's like a resurrection. And he runs. He crosses the line, but he doesn't hand the baton to anybody. It's the 4 by 400 And the other guys are coming. People look at you, and they're like, you're up. And you're like, what? Eating macaroons. What are you talking about? Well, you're, you're, you're the plan. Here we go. We're passing the baton to you. That's what's happening here. Jesus resurrected. Yeah, I'm on team Jesus. This is awesome. Jesus is like, I'm out. See you. When you come back, that's not for you to know, but here's what you're going to do. Oh, no. Wait, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. What does it even mean to be sent? It doesn't mean you have to go to a different place, actually. To be sent means you've been entrusted with the mission and you carry the message wherever you go. In fact, there's only, if you look at Matthew's account, which is the most popular of the Great Commission statements, there's only one command. It's to make disciples. The other stuff is how-to type stuff. This is, the, it's like, this is how you do this. As you're living your life and going, that's a part of the at the beginning, go, and teaching and baptizing. Can you imagine, you want a vision for your life? One of the things people love about our church is that when we baptize people, I don't baptize everybody. I don't know if it's just they don't want to be baptized by me. No, I think it's the, what we do is the person who maybe led you to Christ or is taking some responsibility for you spiritually, who's owning their impact of the language we use here at this church, the person who's discipling, helping you learn about Jesus, grow in Jesus, experience transformation in Jesus, helping you follow Jesus and fulfill the mission of Jesus, that's your discipler. That's who we want baptizing people. So when you think about your vision, what would it look like for you to baptize somebody in the next year or two? Maybe one of your kids, maybe a coworker, maybe somebody you don't even know yet. See, Jerusalem is where they were at. They're standing in the Mount of Olives. You can see the entire city of Jerusalem. It's also where they killed Jesus. Huh? They just killed you here. You want us to go witness to them? Oh, you will be my witnesses. Don't say whether they're going to be good or bad witnesses, but you're a follower of mine. You will be my witnesses. Peter's racist right now. You think Thomas doesn't have any other doubts? These guys are all broken and flawed, but they're sent because they're saved. Saved people are sent people. So if you're saved, he's sending. Jerusalem, that's, that's the first part of the circles, and I think we have a slide. And, and Judea, they rejected Jesus there. They rejected his teaching. Oh, how I long to gather you under my wings, he said, and he wept. He wept for these people. If the miracles have been done in Sodom and Gomorrah that were done here, they would have turned. His heart broke. You want us to go there? Samaria? When we hear Samaria, as Americans, it's natural for us to think of the parable, made-up story, real truth of the good Samaritan. Okay. That's in Luke, by the way. And Luke refers to this story where Jesus is asked, what, who's my neighbor? Who do I have to love? And Jesus intentionally picks a Samaritan because Jews were racist against Samaritans. They hated Samaritans. And he picks this person 
made up character, good, like that sounds like an oxymoron to them. There's no such thing as a good Samaritan. All Samaritans are bad. And so the way he tells the story, it'd be like going, whoever's your favorite political character, he sees this person in need, ignores them. Whoever's your favorite pastor, ignores them. Then Osama bin Laden comes walking down, and then everybody's like, huh? Osama bin Laden's the hero of the story? It's shocking to them, and he tells it that way on purpose. And so Jesus tells them, to Samaria, to the people, so you want me to go to the people that I naturally know, and you want me to stretch a little bit, and then you also, you want me to go to people... But it's progressive. Not today. Not today. But you're going to get there. Here's why. And the order is what matters here. And we'll talk about this just briefly. Talk more about it next week. God dreams of you not only being saved, not only being sent, but he dreams of you being sanctified. That means to being made like Jesus. But here's why. It's not just me putting it that way. It's the way it happens in the text, in the book, and throughout the Bible. Uh, You're sent before you're sanctified. We naturally, especially in our world, especially in RDU, think, I need to be fully ready before I do anything like that. I must be totally educated. I need a degree. I've got to get the information. Okay, hold on, pause. We definitely live in an information age unlike any other. Do you know the information doubles, they estimate right now, every 12 hours? In 1945, it took 25 years for the world to double its information. It happens twice a day now. Wow. You're never going to get all the information, just so you know. 24-hour news cycles, sports channels, they got stuff that's like, how do you even, oh, you say 9 million times the same thing three different ways. Okay. But there's lots of information. It's interesting if you look at Jesus' life that he spent only three years Most of us took longer to graduate college than that. Three years in public ministry, and he never invites the people he calls to follow him into a classroom. It's an apprenticeship. I'll give you some information, but then we're going to go do it, and then we're going to see the transformation. We're sanctified as we are sent. It's important that the sending happens before you're, full, you're not ready. You're not prepared. When Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 that God's not slow in keeping his promises, God is like a thousand years like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. That's a different Peter than the guy who was standing there going, so when are you coming back? Like right now? You're going to restore the kingdom now? The guy who cut a guy's ear off because he's trying to throw, even though Jesus said, nope, not by sword, not by that. So not the kind of battle we're fighting. Jesus, he'd, or Peter, he'd have been like, let's do the crusades. Let's go. Slow your roll on that one, all right? You need the Holy Spirit. This is impossible. We're not trying to force people. We need hearts changed. Yours first, Peter. Okay, well, then how long do I need to say? Just, it's three days, and the Holy Spirit's going to come, and you're going to start going, and you're going to mess it up. Acts chapter 10, when I refer to him being racist, didn't read it. He's, he's racist in the Acts chapter 10, but that's not who he is when he writes Second Peter. He's a different person. He's been walking with Jesus for a long time. Not perfect still, very different. Who you will be by the time you get to that third sphere, different. And so you could break down the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, kind of like this, where you live Uh, People that you already love, people that are already in proximity to you, your neighbors, uh, people in this church, your family members, that's kind of where you're at, your first space. And second space, uh, it comes into where you work. Some of you stay at home or some of you are retired. Well, I guess I don't have a second. No. If you have kids at home, you still got work. If you're retired, you worked at one point. And so, yeah, the relationships, they're not as intimate and maybe you don't even like them as much or they're kind of annoying, but they still need Jesus. And they might have been customers or coworkers, clients, coaches, consultants, contractors. They all started with a C, apparently. Just the pastor rolling out. Anyway. The people you have relationships with through your work. Maybe your competitors. Oh, another C. There we go. It's those people, and you, you're probably getting pictures of them in your mind right now. And what about where you play? And that can be lots of things. It can be a hobby. It could be your time on social media. It could be where your kids play sports. It could be where you go to eat when you go out for dinner. It could be the gas station. It could just where you're rolling through life. And 
It's where you find yourself because of who you are. And, and some of those people, you have very different views then about a lot of things. And your goal is not to get them to agree with you. You want them to know Jesus. So how as you're sent? Well, wait, wait, I don't know enough. Uh, read John chapter 4. There's a woman there who's known Jesus for like 12 seconds and leads an entire city to Christ. Hmm. It's a woman at the well. What about when they ask the question, like, why do bad things? I don't know. Let me just get you to Jesus. How about that for an option? He changed me because you're witnessing. Witnesses, a judge doesn't care about your opinion. Doesn't care about your preferences. What have you seen and heard? A witness, what does John say when he's writing? One of the epistles of John, he writes the Gospel of John, there's the epistles of John, he writes Revelation, and the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. We testify to you about what we've seen, what we've touched, what we've heard, what we've experienced. That's why you've got to start with spiritual transformation. And then what naturally comes out, witness about what you have experienced. Have you experienced it? When I was up in the attic, uh, there was another item that I grabbed, and, and watching Braveheart got me thinking about it. So I haven't actually even read this ever. Sorry, honey. My wife bought me this like 15 years ago. It's a coat of arms for the Lear family. And uh, it, what a coat of arms is, is it tells you uh, the legacy of your name and lineage and what are the values of those people. It's interesting that Braveheart made me think of that because... Braveheart's my favorite kind of movie in the sense that it's, it's based on stuff that's true, but it's made up characters, and so they're interpreting, putting stuff in there, which then shapes our culture, kind of loosely connected to history. And in the movie, there's a guy who betrays Wallace. I don't want to mess up the movie in case you've never seen it. Go watch it. And in real life, we don't know if William Wallace ever gave that speech. It might be made up. What's not made up? is that Robert the Bruce became king of Scotland. That's factual history in the 1300s. And when he was dying, he asked that his heart be removed from his chest and given to a noble knight to carry into battle. That man's name? Sir James Douglas of the Douglas family. He carried that into battle. There were multiple battles until finally one was battling some, some Spanish Moors. <laughs> language we don't use anymore, and they were more formidable enemies than he had anticipated, and it became clear in the battle that he was going to die. He was surrounded on every side. He knew he was going to die, but he's the one who wore the heart of his king, and he intentionally had it pressed under his armor against his own heart, symbolizing that he would follow the heart of his king. When he knew he was going to die, he ripped the necklace off and threw the heart into the battle, and then he yelled what became the coat of arms, the motto of the Douglas family. He yelled, and I'll read it to you, fight for the heart of your king forward, brave heart. This is real. Forward, I will follow my king's heart or die. And so the motto for the Douglas family became, because of one man, changes the whole legacy, because of a vision, one word, forward. We're not going to get to Acts chapter 9, but what happens, there's a guy, he was named Saul. He was a persecutor of the church. He used God to run from God. And then transformation takes place. The information moves to his heart. The words have a different meaning He's changed. And he talks about it in Philippians chapter 3. You can read it on your own later, but here's the summary. He swears, uh, so don't learn Greek. Uh, the way the Bible says it in English oftentimes is, I, if anybody could brag about how awesome they were, it's me. Oh, okay, buddy. No one likes you, but that's cool. I never sinned. I knew the Bible better than everybody else. I was exceeding them in learning and in professional accomplishments and everything. Everything that was related to God, I was winning until I realized I was losing. And I counted all, there's the swear word, garbage, rubbish, whatever your Bible might say. It's a bunch of crap compared to knowing Christ. I want to know Him. And then He says, not that I've done that, I, I press forward, forgetting what's behind, pressing on, forward. 
as we move forward, you might decide, I don't want to be part of that. Okay. But you've got seven days between now and the next time we meet. This is normally the time of the message where I go, let's pray, bow your heads, here we go. I'm not going to pray today because I'm cool with awkward moments. Ask my wife. I'm like the king of awkward. I say dumb stuff, awkward stuff, sometimes on purpose, sometimes not. Um, so I'm going to make this a little bit awkward. I'm not going to pray. I'm going to challenge you to pray for the next seven days. So what they did in Acts, and you can go read it yourself, after what we've read, verses 12 through 15, 16, uh, there's 120 of them. They're gathered in a room. They pray, and they wait for the Holy Spirit, and they pray. And so I just want to challenge you. Pray for the next seven days. Pray Pray for people. Pray, pick one person where you live, one where you work, one where you play, and just pray for them. Christian, not Christian, I don't care. However, God works in your heart. Pray. Pray about yourself. What does it look like to reimagine your dream and align it with God's? It might mean turning from it. It might mean some adjustments. I don't know. I don't know your dream. Pray. Seven days? Talk to somebody about it. When I, instead of scrolling, pause before you scroll. Wait, wait. I'm not saying you can't scroll. Some of you are addicted to scrolling. I'm trying to address that right now. But before you do, pray. Maybe that'll just be a reminder, like as you're driving in your car. It doesn't have to be like some big moment and everybody has to be quiet and got stained glass pictures, the right music. No, no, no. Here's the deal. Just pray. Seven days. However the Lord leads. And if he leads you back here, we'll talk about what happened for them. About 10 days between Acts 1, Acts 2. But we don't want the church until Acts 2. So I challenge you to pray. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.